Welcome. As we get started today, I want to start with a quote by a guy I never met or really know that much of, it, but he's a bishop, Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin. But I like the quote. He says this, if you are not making an impact outside of your four walls, the four walls of the church, then you're not making an impact at all. If you picked up and left, how would the city feel? Would your city weep? Would anybody even notice? Would anybody care? It's an interesting quote. A friend of mine um, and a, a mentor of mine in my younger days is a pastor named John Bruce. He once put it this way. He said, for so many years I felt that my evangelism was like presenting my case before a jury, but the judge wouldn't allow me to present any evidence. See, what he's saying is this, is that the Christian life is not about a pastor preaching a message or any follower telling others about Jesus Christ and about their faith. It is as important, and this this could almost be the title today, it is as important to show as to tell, right? That Christianity is about showing and telling. It's about loving people and then telling them about Jesus. It's about blending those two things together. Both have to be connected. If I share my faith by word, but don't demonstrate it by my actions, by caring for people, then I lack credibility. Why would anyone want what I don't seem to have? Now think about it. So we have to blend those things together. And that's where redeemed lives come in. We're going to be talking about that. It's extremely important for us in our Christian life to be compassionate and caring. And, um, you know, and it's, it's good because that's, that demonstrates that God has saved us from sin. And he's changed our lives. And that's what we call redemption. So these are redeemed lives. That's what we're going to be talking about. What happens when we come to know Christ? Our lives are redeemed. And as our lives have been saved, so we should want to save others, right? And we do that as we show and as we tell uh, about our faith. So this topic of redeemed lives is going to be what we talk about today. We're going to tackle that topic as we look at our What We Believe series. We have covered a lot of ground here. Um, We have talked about the Bible, the Godhead, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation, and the church. Next week, we're going to have the popular topic of Jesus coming again. Make sure you're here. There may be a prediction. (laughs) I'll let you know how it's all going to work out. So if you want to know for sure how it's all going to work out, be here, okay? Uh, We we got this thing all covered. Um, So... We're going to talk about that next week, but today we'll talk about redeemed life. If you want to follow along on what we're covering, you can go to our website, click on who we are and our statement of faith. But let's look at redeemed lives. This is what our statement of faith says we believe about redeemed lives. Um, true followers of Christ should live redeemed lives by loving God supremely and others sacrificially. They should care for one another, have compassion on the poor, and justice for the oppressed. They are to make disciples among all people and always bear witness of their faith through word and deed. Redeemed lives. What are we talking about? You know, we talk about this several times in our series, this whole idea of redeemed lives. In in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, it says that God made us and he deemed us as good. The word deemed is the idea. He, He recognized us as good. He created something good. But we turned away from God, didn't we? And what we did was bad. So God needed to redeem us. He needed to bring us back to where we were. And he did that through the Lord Jesus Christ. A great summary statement on this is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And so if we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we're redeemed. And now we're positioned to help others be redeemed. So the starting point for us this morning is to say, are you redeemed? Are you in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place and rose again? Have you chosen to surrender your life to follow him? Because if you haven't, I think you can still get a lot out of what we're going to say today, but you're not going to be able to actually develop it and practice it in your own life. It's not going to happen. So that's the starting point is for us to be redeemed. And then after we're redeemed is to help others become redeemed. Make sense? That's basically very simple what we're talking about today. The starting point and the overarching theme of it all, overarching statement for us is to understand that we do this by loving God supremely and then loving others sacrificially. It ties into what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Last week we took a break, right? We had Great message by, by Clifton on Thanksgiving. Always enjoy it when he speaks. If you missed it, you can maybe catch it. He just uh, talked about Thanksgiving and concluded with a great personal illustration and story. Um, and we took a little break, but if you can think back, a couple weeks we were talking about the church, and we were talking more internally what God wants us to do inside the church. Today we're talking what we're going to do outside the church. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And the gist of it, I I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read you his answer. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus is saying that we need to do, one leads to the other, right? He says we need to do both, and one leads to the other. But what's most important? Most important is always our love for God. A pastor from long ago named Thomas Brooks said this. He said, they do not love Christ who love anything more than Christ. Now think through that statement. They do not love Christ who is God, as we've learned, who love anything more than Christ. Is there something you love more than the God of the universe? If there is, then you don't love him the way you should. Your love is not genuine. He needs to be first in our lives and in our hearts. He needs to be supreme. And when he is, that love will so overflow us that we cannot help ourselves but to love others around us. That's why it's our mission statement. Our love for God will lead us to love our world. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Um, What happens, though, is we get it backwards. What if we love our world first, but we don't love Jesus first? That happens a lot. And what we end up with is a religious institution or a social service organization with no spiritual power. That's what's become known as the social gospel. And the bottom line is, what does it matter if you save a person's life, but you don't save their soul? And that's why it's always supreme, always most important to love God first. And then after that, we love others sacrificially. Well, can't we just love others? Why do we have to love them sacrificially? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what he calls us to. He once said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, What does that mean? Greater love has no one um, than this, 
Greater love has, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. From serving the disciples the Passover meal to healing the blind and the deaf and the lame and the mute and caring for the oppressed to giving his life on the cross, Jesus was ministering everywhere to those who were needy. His whole life was doing that. He was caring for everybody. But here's something I want you to catch that sometimes is missed. Jesus cared for his own family first. Most of his ministry was caring for his intimate family, especially apparently after his father died. It wasn't until he was 30 years of age that he started his ministry. Over the next three years, he cared primarily for the people within his household, his community, and and in his world. Um, He focused on Israel. And I think there's an illustration for us here, too, is that you need to take care of your own family first. And part of your own family is not just your physical family, but your spiritual family. The first place that God calls us to take care of is one another. This is our family. This is our home. We need to take care of each other sacrificially. John said this once. He was talking about how the church ought to love one another. He said, beloved, if God so love us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God makes his love known through us. We looked back a couple weeks ago to, to Acts 2. And remember, they're talking about the early church. How did the early church bring people in? And see people come to know Christ. Do you remember? People would come to visit and they would come to know Christ because they saw how much they loved one another. That is the most effective form of evangelism that we have, is demonstrating to people our love for one another. When people see that, it's absolutely contagious. It inspired an old song, which has gotten a little bit dated, but the sentiment is still strong. They will know we are Christians by our love. Remember that, some of you? They'll know we're Christians by our love. They should know that we're believers by the way that we love one another. And so that's the first step. And part of that kind of overflowing out of that is taking care of those around us um, that are are in in our immediate life. Jesus, one of the first things he did with his disciples is in Matthew 10, he sent them out to minister to oikons. Now, the Greek word oikon means household. And we talk about this a lot in our church because that's the primary way that they did ministry. An oikon or a household, in those days they were communal. So this would be tough. Can you imagine living 8 to 12 people in your home um, and they're not all your family? Some would be friends. Some would be neighbors that were displaced. Some would be servants if you had, you know, the money. Uh, they could be extended family and they'd all live together. And so he would send like two disciples and they would show their love for one another to this small family And then that family would come to know Christ. And then they would expand and they'd go to another family. And so that's why we often ask, who are the 8 to 15 people in your life who God has placed in your life that you could minister to? The people you go to work with, the people you go to school with, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your household. And it's all about relationships. It's about loving them and bringing them to church and letting them see your love for one another here, that they might become part of this family. It's all about show and tell. You show them you love them, and then you tell them you love them, and you tell them that God loves them. And he loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them. Some of the greatest movements of God 
have always, the greatest movements of God have always blended these two. You, you, you look at these back throughout history. Um, it was true of the great evangelical awakenings in Great Britain and in America. The Moody revivals, I'm reading a biography now on Deal Moody. Oh my goodness, you, that's a story everybody should read. Great, great book, fascinating man. Um, Billy Graham's New Evangelical Movement. Ralph Winter, the great missiologist, once said that America's second great awakening may have done more social good than any similar movement, any movement of any kind in world history. When the gospel is preached and it's show and tell time, it changes all of society. I mean, it just changes everything. That's what God does when we do this. So we have to genuinely love others, though, and not just be doing things for our own personal power, but because we genuinely love others. If we truly love God, we will love others. And if we truly love others, it will give evidence of our love for God. As the moon reflects the sun, so should our lives reflect God's sun. People will be mesmerized by it and drawn to him and want to hear his message. It isn't about what we can get from people. It's about what we can give from people that will transform both our lives in the process. So now that's your, your backdrop, and now he gets very specific on three things. The first thing he wants to talk about that we would talk about it, you know, in, our, in our statement of faith is that we have to have compassion on the poor. And why? Because Jesus says so. Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus talks to a rich young ruler, and he tells him to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. So this is a tough message, right? I want everything you have. Give me people. <laughs> God's calling you. <laughs> no, but that's not really what it's saying, right? Well, is it? Um, actually, what he's saying there is that this guy had come to love his wealth. He's worshiping his wealth more than God. And he says, you need to be willing to give it all away. Because like we said at the beginning, if you love anything more than Jesus, you don't really love Jesus. See that? Do you love what you possess more than you love God? If I was... And I did it facetiously. But if I was to say, I want you to give everything you can because of your love for Jesus, what would you hold back? What do you love more than Jesus? Because you see, everything you have really isn't yours. Do you ever think about that? It's what he gave you. It's his. It doesn't belong to you anyway. And when you die, you'll lose it all. Okay? So it's already his. So are you willing to recognize that and say, I'll do with this money whatever you call me to do, even if it means that it impoverishes me? That's the point. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Not, to get, not that people should be poor, but that we should be willing to give whatever God calls us to. We tend to think, oh, I, poor people that are so poor, you know, we're richer than them and, you know, have to help these poor people. Um, I had a lesson on this. Years ago, I was um, in Rosarito, uh, Mexico, working in an orphanage um, for a weekend. And the guy that was working there, the head of the orphanage, his name was George Palau, who by coincidence happened to be the nephew of the great evangelist Luis Palau. And George, George is a really great guy. He took me aside and he said, look at those kids. And they, were, they had a wagon. They were going up and down this hill. There were a couple of them. And they were laughing so hard and rolling around in the dirt and everything. And he goes, those kids are happy. He says, one of the problems that Americans don't understand is that he says, I think those kids, because they know Jesus, they're having fun and they're happier than most American kids. Because American kids are driven by what they can get and they always want more. These kids don't care. 
They're having fun with what they have. They're content. So it's sad when people come in like with this superiority thing, they're missing the point. People that are poor are not lesser than people that are rich. God doesn't look at it that way. He sees us as all equals. And what's really important is just that we're caring for one another. Um, When somebody is hurting and has less than you and, and has certain needs and you care for them, it's a good thing for them, but in many ways it's a good thing for you too. Sometimes it's a better thing. My friend and mentor, Randy Alcorn, um, likes to say that giving is the good life. It is. Because it, it frees us up, causes us to depend more on God, and brings joy to us as we see others' lives changed. It should be natural for us to care for the needs of those less fortunate than us. But we can also be used by God to draw them into the kingdom in the process. But how much do we give? The Old Testament said you give 10% of your income to the temple, you know, and then they would distribute it abroad. Um, But Jesus goes further. He gives an example of his disciples in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, of a widow. And this poor widow gives two coins. It's all she gives to the offering. And Jesus says she has given more than anybody else. Why? Because once again, she gave all she had. That's sacrificial giving. Jesus demonstrates how much we should give. He gives his life for you to pay for your salvation. Sacrificial giving. What would happen if everybody gave sacrificially? For example, even to our church. What would God do? What doors would he open? What people could we reach for Christ? With the money he's already given us, that's his money. When we use it in that way. Pretty powerful stuff. When you start to think about that, often we hear of wealthy celebrities giving out of their abundance or usually raising money from their followers for a cause. That's not giving sacrificially. And often that's true of us too. It's something to think about. Now, people will kick back and say, well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Yeah, he did say that, but let's look at the context. Mary had just anointed him with oil. It was very expensive, and the disciples said, we could have given this to the poor. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. And what he gets back to is the great commandment. What he says is, I am most important. It is most important to worship me. But at the same time, you should still care for the poor. But, but what Jesus is saying is cautionary, and it's helpful for us. The poor will always be with you. One of the most depressing books that I've ever read was a story. This lady gave me this book to read, and I, I don't know why I read it. Maybe so I could use it as an illustration today. Um, but it's a book about this guy who is this brilliant doctor who figured out how he could end, end poverty in Haiti. And he spent it, it, like 20 years of his life doing everything he could to end it. And, and on paper, it all should have ended. But it didn't work. He couldn't end it. And the guy just ends up banging his head against the wall and practically going insane over it. And the reason why is we live in a fallen world. It's broken. And we will never end poverty on this planet until Jesus comes again. But we can make it better. And we can solve it in certain areas. So we are always pushing ahead and always trying to end it in a sense. But understanding that we don't guilt out over it. 
You know, because you could spend every minute trying to end it, and, and you can't. It's, it's just it's part of the curse. However, I, I want to say one more thing as we get off of this topic, and that is, is that there are some people you shouldn't give to. Proverbs talks about this a lot. It goes into great detail and talks about people that are sluggards. They're lazy people whose poverty is self-induced. If you bail them out this time, you'll have to do it again and again and again. And Paul addresses this issue in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10b, and he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, obviously, we find people on the streets who have mental illness or maybe drug addiction, and they need help. Um, but they need help more than food. And that's one of the troubles we have in our country right now is trying to figure out how to do that. We also have people on the street who are there just because they have homes to live in, but they're just revolt, you know, rebelling against society. And, and we have to be very discerning who we give to, is all I'm saying here. The next area he talks about is the oppressed. He says we need to have justice for the oppressed. Um, the, um, the idea we have from Jesus is given in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. Jesus inaugurated his formal ministry with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to who? The poor. Who, by the way, the majority of people who have known Christ through the years have been poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word oppressed means to have power over, and obviously this is in an abusive way. This can happen formally, informally, spiritual, or, and spiritually, uh, according to Vine's Expository Dictionary. Wayne Grudem, the noted... Um, Theologian says that the oppressed in Jesus' life included healing the sick, casting out demons, forgiving sins, and ethical teachings that promote social justice. We put all that together and we see that Jesus is meeting all the needs. He meets the, the physical needs, he meets the spiritual needs, he meets the social needs of people. Um, he covers it all. He healed those that were spiritually enslaved to demonism and sin. He healed those that were physically enslaved to illness, and he provided a pathway um, from ethical slavery to righteous living as we follow him, especially in his Sermon on the Mount. So it's all there. But how does the church do that today? Well, we visit and care for the sick, those with medical needs. We pray for those, especially those that are sick or those who have spiritual oppression. In fact, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, instructs people who have um, a terminal illness or have a chronic illness or, or struggling with spiritual demonism or something to come to the elders, that the elders uh, might pray for them. So we should apply the teachings that we're talking about today to our society. It means that we should treat our employees well and we should respect our employers. It should affect the way we vote. Um, and it may lead us to minister to a particular group of oppressed people. Who are the most oppressed people in America today? To me, that's an easy answer. It's the only people that can't speak for themselves in society and whose lives are being taken. We're talking about unborn children. They're the most oppressed people in America today. They don't even have a voice. And so we should be looking for ways to serve them. And that may be something that God leads you specifically to do, is to be involved in that ministry. You can't do everything. Again, you're always going to have oppression with you, too, just like you'll always have poverty. And you can't guilt out over it, but you can find ways to serve. And there may be certain area that you're specifically drawn to. Uh, so those are, are different things that we have. In, Matthew, in Luke chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus goes on to address 
um, how he came to fulfill the year of the Lord's favor, and that would be the, to, to the Hebrew people, the year of Jubilee. And this actually ties into this whole concept of slavery. I want to take just a, 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 note, a moment to talk about slavery because it's so misunderstood in the Bible. Slavery was not actually an entirely a bad thing. They get your attention? <laughs> yeah, what? I heard it so bad. Understand, they didn't have the monetary system that we have today. So a guy doesn't have a job. He, I mean, he's working in the fields, and his field dries up. He doesn't have any place to work. And a guy with a bigger field and, and thing says, come and work for me. I'll take care of you, and I'll feed you, and I'll take care of your whole family if you work for me. He doesn't pay him. He becomes a slave. Is that a bad thing? And now he's taken care of. But let's put it this way. How would you like to work? For, how would you like to live with your boss? Okay? You know, think about that. How would you like to live with your boss? Um, it, it became very oppressive during time. It became abused. And so when the, the Mosaic law is given, God says, if you're going to have slaves, treat them humanely. But he goes further than that. And he offers a way that within seven years that a person who's in slavery could work their way out, get some wages, make some money, and then go out and leave and go out on their own and get a start on their own. And then in the year of Jubilee, everybody was to be set free. Although we don't know if they ever practiced it. But, but that's how God set it up. And the idea is that in heaven, everybody's going to be set free. Even of employment, right? We'll all be completely set free. And so that's the picture that God has for us here. And, and it went on. You know, I mean, Paul asked Philemon, for example, Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. And Paul says, now that Onesimus has come to know the Lord, he's your brother in the Lord. What would you do with your brother? Would he be your slave? And some of you would go, mm-hmm. you know, so hopefully he had a good relationship with his brother because that messes it up otherwise. But you get the principles that he should be setting him free. And so over time, the Roman Empire had so many people that were in slavery. It was unbelievable, but they ended slavery. If they tried to do it immediately, it would have bankrupted the whole community. I mean, the economic distress would have been unsurmountable, but they eventually ended it. In addition, Christianity has been at the root of battling slavery with such famous crusaders as Wilberforce, Carey, Wesley, and the abolition movement in America, worthy of note. But due to human trafficking, there is more slavery in the world today than there has ever been in history. We think it's over, but there's more. It's just, it's, it's an insidious thing. There's more slavery today than there's ever been. And again, that might be an area you want to get involved in. Now, I want to address something that is misunderstood and has become an insidious part of our society today, and that's liberation theology. You ever heard of that? Liberation theology is, is the, the flip back. So what we have is we have typically people that are in majority, people that are in power, people that are rich, tend to oppress those people that have less than they have. That's just how we are, people. That's, I hate to admit it. I mean, that's how we all are. You know, we just tend to, to, to use our power over others. So then the liberation theology flips it and says that anybody who is a majority or anybody who is in power or anybody who is rich is a bad person. And everybody that is poor is a good person. And Jesus came to champion the rights of the poor and the, the people that are oppressed. Is that biblical? It's not biblical. And you know why? Um, because a person is not better or worse based on their gender, nationality, or social economic standing, according to the Bible. Romans 3, chapter 23, 
says that we're all sinners and all fall short of God's holiness, and everybody in this room and in all the world, every human being who's ever lived deserves to go to hell. There's nobody that's better. And as long as we keep trying to say, you need to look at me because I'm in, I'm, I'm in power, or you need to look at me because I've been oppressed and now you need to make it up to me, you're never going to get anywhere. You'll just have more and more riots and fighting until people say, it's not about me. I'm as messed up as you are. Let's take care of one another and let's understand that there's only one who is worthy of our allegiance, and that's Jesus. And it starts with forgiveness for one another. That's what's going to heal us. Paul said this, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. One of the travesties in our country is that we have become so divided. You know, and, 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 and there's a saying, you know, Sunday morning is the most segregated time in American history. America, you know, I'm going to push back against that. I think it's unfair. I don't think you can say that because in some cultures, like even our own, we are not in a multicultural city. So we can only pull from who we can pull from. Um, and there are sometimes there are language barriers. People can't even understand you, so they have to work with their own language group. But we're seeing more and more multiculturalism within cities. And around the world, the largest multicultural movement in world history blows everybody off the planet as Christianity. Do you know that? When we get to heaven, we'll have every nationality with us. And by the way, that's why you should involve yourself in developing relationships with people of every nationality. Because that's who you're going to be with in heaven. And it's beautiful to mix the cultures and have international ministries. And I've been able to travel some internationally. It's just so powerful and have friends from different cultures and backgrounds. So, so that's something that's good, people. But, but the thing is here um, that, that, it, that the world doesn't do that. The world can't do that. We'll never achieve that kind of unity in the world because it always insists that we follow a person or, or, or a culture. One person has to be right and everybody else has to be wrong. Jesus is the one who heals it. He's the one who resolves it. He's the only one who can resolve the problems that we have. We can be nice to people and care for people that are oppressed and are different than us. But ultimately, if we don't come to know Christ, it's not going to have a lasting impact. The greatest thing you can do, again, for people is to lead them to the cross. Next, he says we should make disciples of all nations. And this is the idea that we should go to the whole world. Jesus says in his great commission, uh, he says that we are to make disciples of all nations. And the word nations is literally ethne in Greek. And ethne means ethnicities. Backgrounds. Every people group on the planet need to come to know Christ. Did the disciples achieve this? No, they didn't even come close. And we still have it. And we won't, once again, just like the poor will always be with us, the oppressed will always be with us, and we'll always be trying to reach people for Christ around the world. But one day, it will come. And we should be striving to do that until Jesus comes again. Um, how do we do that? Well, we can't do that as a church, can we? I mean, of course, it'd be kind of fun to travel, wouldn't it? Um, if we could all, hey, next week we're going to be in India. Next week we're going to be in China. Hey, we're going to go down to Africa. You know, it doesn't work that way. But we can send other people to these places. And so we do that. And that's who we have as our missionaries. And they, they do that on, on our behalf. 
just like the early church sent Paul and others. I want to say something here that we sometimes forget is that even though we send others to the mission field, we are missionaries. Do you ever think about that? Wherever you are at, you are a missionary. Now I hear this a lot, that people surprisingly are upset with the, uh, the politics and the confusion in California. Can you believe that? <laughs> hey, I get it. I'm a native Californian. I've seen things go up and down, and I've never seen it darker. I, I'll admit that. It's awful, and it is upsetting. Um, but, but here's the question that I want to put before you. Is God calling you someplace else? Because if he's calling you out of this state, then get out of here and get out of here now. Do what Jesus wants you to do. Okay? But are you just going someplace else because you want people that think like you think and other Christians and create your own paradise on earth and your old comfort zone? Because if you are, you're missing the point. California is 10 times better than the places that we're sending our missionaries. They're suffering. They know what it's like to suffer. While they're going to places to save people's souls, you're running away from people that need their soul saved. So make sure you understand that. I like what C.T. Studd said, and this is what kind of keeps me going, gang. I'll go wherever God calls me to be, and it may not always be California, but what keeps me going is I think of C.T. Studd when he said, some love to live within the sound of church bells ringing. I'd rather run a rescue ship within the gates of hell. People were in the gates of hell. We're right there. You want to join me in rescuing people? You're missionaries here. If you're called here, let's rescue people. Let's make a difference. Let's turn it around. That's what God's calling us to do. So keep that in mind. That's what this whole passage is about. We're redeemed. Let's help redeem them. And then he summarizes it with this statement. Witness their faith through word and deed. How do we do this? Um, We've talked about some of these things. Our oikos. Are you, you know, here's the deal. Our church is growing. We're seeing people come to know the Lord. We're looking at more baptisms. And you know why that's happening? You know why it's happening? Because of you. Because you're bringing people in. Because you're loving your neighbors. They eat the 15 people in your life. And this should get contagious. You should get excited and do it all the more. It is wonderful, the people we have in this church. You guys genuinely love God and you genuinely love your world. And it's being felt. People are coming. And they're seeing our love for one another, and their lives are being changed just like ours were changed when we first came to know Jesus. Get involved in a small group. That way you can take care of each other and nobody falls through the cracks. Give financially. We've talked about this, you know, before. And and just like we see here, one, one thing to keep in mind, what they did originally in the church is they would give to the church and then allow the church to give to the charity, so to speak. So... If you give to us, the idea is, is that we'll take what you give for to us and we will make sure it gets to the right people for the cause of Christ. And then we'll tell you about what we're doing. And you can check our budget to make sure we're doing everything, you know, we're not going off, off chart here. So that's, that's the ideal way to do it. And then if God has blessed you and you have more to give, then you give beyond that to some other cause. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I told you that our finances were a little tight and you know what? More money came in. We're going to give a budget, talked about our budget next week, but gosh, you guys are such, you guys are such generous people. I'm just so grateful for you. And I, and I think, I really sense that it's growing. I'm seeing, I'm seeing you grow in your relationship with the Lord and giving more of yourselves to Christ in your relationships and in your giving. And 
it thrills me. You know, I, I can't tell you how happy it makes me to look out and see your faces, and each of you have stories that I know about. It really makes me happy. I can't imagine how happy it makes the Lord. Family support network. We, you know, I, and when I, this is, we're talking about externally focused ministries, and I've been involved in ministries through the years, and, and people come to you. This is what happens, okay? Everybody comes every day. Hey, I've got something you could do. Hey, I've got something you can do. Sometimes they have really good ideas, and sometimes they're whack-a-doodle, okay? <laughs> and you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, right? And, and then you just say, okay, I'll do that because you want to do this. I'll do that. And, and it just becomes this hodgepodge, and you're all over the place, and you have no real focus, and you're not doing anything well. And so we said, hey, this is beyond us, a lot of this stuff. Let's see if we have somebody who's an expert in some of these areas who can handle it for us. And we found an organization in town that's run by Christians, uh, is related to the Oak Valley Hospital, named the Family Support Network. They provide financial support, clothing, and food for people. They also refer people to places best equipped to meet their needs. They help the homeless and immigrants and those struggling, um, unhealthy families, They've even had a bilingual marriage and family counselor offering free services on Saturday afternoons. They teach parents courses, uh, parenting courses, and, and how to put car seats in. Man, I wish they'd have taught me that when I was a kid. My kids really wish they would have taught me that. Um, <laughs> bounced around a bit. Um, but <laughs> they got through it. Um, have a variety, there's a variety of different program projects that they have, and they give money, uh, we give money annually to them. We send our people there when they have needs. They just do some, some great, great stuff. Um, and then it's not just financial, but we give them things like backpack drives for the kids, uh, Christmas gifts for the poor we're doing right now. We gave them turkey, you know, um, gift, you know turkey uh, gift cards for turkeys, and I, brought, I had the privilege of bringing that down this year. And that lady, the lady I talked to, Kathy was her name, practically teared up. It was clear that nobody gave them as much as we gave them. They're absolutely blown away. Did you see the article about it in the front page of the paper? No, and you're never going to. <laughs> we don't give to get attention for ourselves. We give because it's what God wants us to do. Nobody needs to know, but you need to know from me that you are generous people. And what you did was unbelievable. And it just blew their socks off. So now we've got to provide socks for them. Um, <laughs> always something. You know, the poor will always be with us. Um, so, so those are neat things. And we have many other things we're going to do. So if you want to know what you can do, you can always go down there. Or you can talk to Lindy. Lindy, raise your hand. Lindy Jansen in the back here with the pretty red sweater on with her boys. Um, she is in the back. Talk to Lindy if you ever have any questions. And she can tell you how you can get more involved with Family Support Network. She's our liaison there. Um, World Mission. We give approximately 13% of our budget to missions. And we give about 60% of that to our missionaries. Uh, Miller served primarily among refugees in Berlin. I was on WhatsApp with Brian this morning, talking, uh, interacting with him some. Um, the Jungs serve, serve among restricted access countries in very dangerous places with their headquarters in Seoul, South Korea. You hang around here, you'll meet those guys. They come around here every once in a while, and you get to know them personally and see the things that they're doing. They're having impacts in their country. We're putting together a missions team. We're hoping to go to Berlin when things you know, settle down you know, after the fifth variant ends. You know. Um, <laughs> Maybe we'll go there after we've all had our fifth um, round of boosters. Um, so anyway, um, we hope things will settle down. We'll be able to go to Berlin. That would really be cool. Um, we give about 20% of our missions budget primarily to mission agencies to care for people in need. And we're looking at this, some things we can do for the end of the year. 
And we give about 20% to travel, especially to the church staff to visit missionaries and do additional ministries. Last thing I want to mention, just sort of an additional addendum here, is your holy itch. A um, number of years ago, Mitch Clifton and I went on a, a conference, and they talked about the holy itch. Remember Mitch? We, we talked about, Mitch loves that. He loves that saying, so we talked about that. Um, but the, the holy itch, the whole idea is, what is it that God has kind of put inside you to do? And everybody's different. And, you know, a lot of times you think, well, everybody should take care of the homeless because that's my holy itch. Maybe not. You know, you can't do everything. But what is your holy itch? And and think through what it might be, something you might do that God wants you to do. And he may not have something for you yet. Uh, It may be your holy itch to just give into the church and serve in here um, and and doing your oikos. But if God puts something on your heart, be open to it. Some people in our church have done some powerful things. Our homeless ministry, we've had a number of people involved in that. In fact, the Copeland families have been very involved with the Modesto Gospel Mission. Uh, Phil Wickham did a concert for that to raise money for that recently. So there's some people that are involved in that ministry. Um, Jeremy was involved with the Modesto Crisis Pregnancy Center for a while. Um, Deborah Tussing is doing work helping with foster care. Um, we you know, have ministry to immigrants, ministry against human trafficking. I know Carolyn Coons used to work with, um, without permission, fighting human trafficking. If you're interested in one of these areas, come and talk to us and we'll help get you connected. I think the most memorable person I ever met was Richard Vermbrand. I interviewed him when I was a young student in seminary. Um, he was a pastor who was tortured in Romania during the Cold War. Uh, couldn't wear shoes because they beat his feet so bad, so he had to be careful how he walked. He wrote the book Tortured for Christ, and he's the founder of Voice for the Martyrs. If you've not seen the movie Tortured for Christ or the more recent Sabina Vornbrand, the story of his wife, um, and you've watched another movie instead, then you have wasted your time. I I'm pretty much convinced that there's nothing much better out there right now to watch for a Christian. Uh, and you, you, need to, you need to watch those. Your younger kids, maybe not, but they're not too graphic. I think the older kids could watch them as a family. So, um, yeah, that's your homework. Watch Tortured for Christ. Watch Sabina Vermbrand. Um, but I want to share this with you, what he said. He related this more to those within the church, but I, I think it has far-reaching implications. He said, whoever wishes to meet Jesus must meet him in places where brothers and sisters of Jesus are hungry, thirsty, naked, unwanted, sick, or in prison. Whoever keeps himself distant from these places remains distant from Jesus. If we want to draw close to Jesus, we'll find him among the needy of this world. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for how you've cared for the poor and the needy throughout history. Thank you so much that we have the privilege of being part of, uh, of you, your hands and your feet in this process. Thank you that you've taken us from spiritual poverty into the riches and the grace of heaven. Pray that we would share that with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.